Good morning. I hope you all had a great holiday. I know we both did. We're here to give you another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. And today we are going to tell you about the infamous case from 1996, the case of John Bonet Ramsey. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive on in. like to give a brief warning before jumping into this episode as it deals with violent acts against young children. We will not be going into any extreme detail outside of what is necessary to get the story out there. We would advise listener caution for this episode. I might do one more quick disclaimer from Erica and I. This is a very well-publicized and theorized case that is unsolved still. There is a ton of information out there, a ton of documentaries, as well as a lot of very polarizing views on who is the culprit in this case. So we're going to give you our take on it, but we definitely recommend doing your own research and kind of forming your own opinion on what happened to John Bonet and feel free to let us know your opinions and your thoughts as well. John Bonet Ramsey was born August 6, 1990 as John Bonet Patricia Ramsey in Atlanta, Georgia to her parents, John and Patricia Ramsey. Patricia went by Patsy, so when I say Patsy, that's who I'm referring to. John Bonet was named after her dad, who was named John Bennett, and then her mother, Patricia Ramsey. They just put a little bit of a spin on the Bennett for her dad's middle name and added it to her first name, which is pretty cool. That's where that unique name came from. John Bonet had an older brother named Burke, who was about three years older than her. Her dad, John, was a multimillionaire that worked for Access Graphics, and they lived in a really big home that a lot of people would kind of refer to as a mansion. Everything that they really needed was provided. They never had to worry about clothes on their backs or food on the table. They always had what they needed and more. Oh, yeah. They were very successful and had quite a bit of money. I know they had their own... Like you said, almost a mansion. They had boats. They had, I think I even saw a private plane, possibly. They were well off. Oh, absolutely. John had been formally married and had three children from that marriage. However, his oldest, Beth, passed away in a car crash in 1994. So when our story starts in 1996, she has already passed. John Bonet was a beauty queen, and that's what she was really known for. She had followed in her mother's footsteps in that way. She was a really successful beauty queen and had run many competitions, many pageants. She was kind of known as a celebrity in the community. She performed in a shopping mall just a few days prior to Christmas, and a lot of people in the town really knew who she was. Yeah, and another reason people knew who she was, aside from the pageants, is the family was just very well known in the Boulder area. And they were hosts and entertainers. They loved having people over for parties. I think Patsy in an interview said that just that holiday season in 1996, they had upwards of 2,000 people going through their house. So they did not live a secretive lifestyle. They really were outgoing. That's a lot of people to have come through your home. I couldn't imagine. So they really had to be kind of keeping up their image, I kind of feel like. They were living that wealthy lifestyle in 1996 and living in Boulder, Colorado in a 15-bedroom mansion. The family was getting ready 
in Boulder, Colorado for all of their Christmas parties and to just enjoy a nice holiday as a family. On December 25th, 1996, the Ramsey family went to dinner at a friend's house and on their way home, Jean Bonnet had fallen asleep in the car and they made it back to their house around 9 p.m. They had to get up early the next morning. They were going to fly out to Michigan to go see John's other kids that lived up there. And so they had a really early flight. Everything's normal. They go to bed. And on December 26, 1996, Patsy woke up around 530 to finish up some laundry. I think just kind of get ready for their flight and heading out. By 5.45 a.m., police received a 911 phone call and Patsy said she had woken up and found a three-page ransom note with a request for $118,000 from the family to ensure the safe return of Jean Bonnet. And Patsy at this point was like, hold on. When she found the note, she had no idea her daughter wasn't in her bed. So she ran up there and was looking everywhere for her and couldn't find her, which led to the 911 phone call. 911 dispatch operator Kimberly Archuleta answered this phone call from Patsy Ramsey. Abby, what is your first initial thought when you hear this 911 call? For me, I think she just sounds frantic. She doesn't know what to do, as probably most mothers in this situation. And she's just trying to call them to get someone to come help. And I try to take her next steps, I guess. So Abby and I kind of have different thoughts about this case a little bit that we'll definitely get into more throughout this episode. But right now, I want to talk about the 911 call specifically. So I'm on the Statement Analysis website, which is by Mark McClish, who is a retired officer. And he was known for a lot of forensic interviewing that he did in his during his 26 years as an officer. So he uses those techniques to kind of go through different 911 calls. He also goes through the ransom note, which we're going to talk about too. So first, we're going to talk about the 911 call. If you want to go and look at his website, I highly recommend it because I'm not going to go through everything that he talks about. I'm only going to hit on a few points. The link for it is going to be in our show notes and on our anchor page. So you can go and look in either spot or you can just go to statementanalysis.com and look up John Bonet Ramsey. When the 911 operator first answers the phone, we hear her say, what is going on there, ma'am? And Patsy says, we have a kidnapping. Hurry please. So one thing that Mark McClish talks about with this is how weird it is that Patsy says, we have a kidnapping. Hurry, please. 
She doesn't say any specifics. She doesn't say my daughter's been kidnapped. Our daughter's kidnapped. My daughter's missing. She doesn't say anything like that. She just says we have a kidnapping. Mark McClish says that a lot of people don't want to lie. And when they're kind of put in a situation to lie, they're going to twist it a little bit, which I think we all kind of know that that's something that a lot of people do, but they'll soften the lie by not giving specifics. So instead of saying my daughter has been kidnapped, they just said that we have a kidnapping because it's not a full on lie, which I kind of agree with him in this situation. I do think it's weird that you just say we have a kidnapping. And then he talks about how it's kind of weird that she says please at the end of that because it's being too polite instead of just direct, which I'm not sure how I feel about that one. He says that she uses it eight times during the 911 call. Abby, what are your thoughts about either of those? The first part I I can't even get on board with, really. For me, a lot of times when it comes to 911 calls, I don't put a lot of validity into it because I think in a high-stress situation... You're not going to say things that maybe sound normal to a person. Everyone handles stress differently. As for the please thing, I think it's kind of a normal thing to say, please help. Please hurry. I know I would I say please a lot, probably more than I need to. And I think it probably goes with how much this family was trying to look to their peers and stuff. You know, they're wealthy. They probably are pretty proper. Yeah, I can see that. I think that in a situation like this, I would probably just call and say, I need somebody here right now. Like, I don't even know that I would put a please in there. I think that that's just, I just feel like more words take more time. And in a high stress situation like this, where you really just need somebody to come and help, getting there quicker is going to be better. And just saying we have a kidnapping, like giving some sort of information, I feel like is kind of beneficial. And honestly, after going through cases just like this one and ones we've gone through, I feel like I need to have a script ready just in case something happens. So I make sure I don't say the wrong thing or I say the right thing and get the right amount of information because, you know, there's gonna, obviously when something like this happens, you don't think about what you're saying, but you're gonna get dissected like this. Every, they're gonna turn over every stone and, you know, sometimes things can get misconstrued or, hey, maybe if you're guilty and you don't want to get caught, you better have a script <laughs> laid out. You know what I mean? Well, and that's why that's a thing. I mean, there are situations where people are kind of dissected and their 911 calls are really analyzed and they turn out to be innocent. But mm-hmm. there are just as many where they turn out to be guilty. Yeah. And how many cases have we covered where people don't want to get involved because they're scared they're going to be named a suspect. You know what I mean? I think, was it um, Brandon Lawson where the guy didn't want them looking around on his property and he said he didn't want to get involved and he was nervous, which, I mean, that's not the approach we would take. But, you know, all it takes is the wrong thing to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and all of a sudden you're a suspect for murder. And we have a whole series about that, our whole wrongful conviction. Yep. And... So unfortunately, it does happen. I think we have to put some sort of trust into the police and the criminal justice system and believe that what they're doing is beneficial. 
The other thing that Mark really hits on throughout this entire thing is how her diction changes. Sometimes she says no, and sometimes she says ransom note. She also sometimes says our daughter is gone, and then other times says our daughter is missing. He talks about how it's weird that she changes the language that she's using because nothing really made her change the language. So he thinks that that's a sign that she's being deceptive is how he perceived that. I don't know that I agree with that 100%. I know when I talk and I hope for you guys that listen to this podcast, I sound like I am really well thought out and that my language is great and super smooth. But when I talk, my diction changes constantly. And in a high stress situation, it's probably not going to stay the same. So I don't know that that's something that I necessarily agree with him on, but I'm not a professional interviewer or anything. That's him. So, Abby, what's your thought on that? I agree. I can only imagine if someone held me to what my addiction was and whether it was changing because God knows it's not great. (laughs) Yeah, we want to get you guys a blooper episode soon and you guys will understand what we're talking about when we say our language and diction is not great at all. Props to our editor for <laughs> putting it all together well, but the hours of time that he takes in to making <laughs> our mess sound. Our words work. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I don't know that there's a ton of validity in that in my mind, but the other thing that he talks about, which I do agree with, she never once says John Bonet's name. She keeps saying, my daughter, our daughter, the mother. She doesn't use her name at all. She always just kind of disassociates herself a little bit from the situation. So I'm the mother, not I'm John Bonet's mother or I'm her mother, which is something that we've talked about in previous episodes. We talked about it in the Beaumont episode where they're at the store getting ice cream and the one girl says, I want to order this for the man. It, it just seems weird because you don't refer to somebody as the Abby or I might because I suck at language, but I just, it's hard. I just feel like you could make it a little bit more personal, I guess. And I don't know, Abby, what, what's your thought, I guess? Once again, I don't put any stock into this. I I know how I talk and people around me talk. Everybody has you know, their own words they use that might not even make sense, their own dialect, basically. I know there's things that I say goofy around Erica and she'd understand, but if I said it to some stranger, they'd be like, what'd you just say? You know, and I just, once again, in a high stress, high emotion situation like this, like a 911 call where your daughter's missing, I just don't think you should be held accountable for certain words, unless you're saying something god awful that sounds, I murdered, oh wait, I mean, she's missing. Like, if it's something like that, sure, maybe. But, and I don't even know how much admissibility this kind of stuff has in court, like going through 911 calls and analysis. But I did see something where it is typically used to eliminate suspects as opposed to pointing a finger at one, which I think this case has a lot of where people are convinced one way or the other. And, you know, you got to make sure You're looking at theories that fit the facts and not facts to fit your theory. Which is what we just talked about in our most recent wrongful conviction as well. Joseph Abbott, he was 
the theory and they were trying to make the facts fit the theory. And it doesn't always work that way. You start with what you have and then you work through that and then come up with the theory. Yeah. And in this case, like, like I said, it's a very high publicized case. Media took a big old hold on it. Everybody's got their own opinions. And I'm not going to say I know one way or another because I don't know who did it. But for me personally, I lean away from the analysis of the 911 call, whereas I think Erica maybe leans a little bit more towards some of it and puts a little bit more, more validity in some of it than I do. I also think that it kind of just shows our backgrounds a little bit more. I have a psychology degree, so I kind of really focus on a lot more of this stuff than I think Abby does. But the other thing that I want to point out, which there, like I said, there's a lot more, but the other thing that I'll point out with a 911 call and then we'll move on. Is that when the 911 operator asks, does it say who took her? Patsy responds with what? And I don't feel like when you listen to it, I feel like Kimberly is pretty clear when she says it. And maybe Patsy's just in a really frantic mindset. And so the first thing that she can think of is what? But then Kimberly asks, does it say who took her? And she just says, no, I don't know. It's there. There is a ransom note here. Then the 911 operator says it's a ransom note because that's the first time that ransom note has been stated she just says it says sbtc victory please so it the ending is just kind of a lot of things at once one thing that mark talks about is the fact that the ransom note which we'll go into later actually says victory sbtc not the other way around i'm confused what does that even mean <laughs> i have no idea what it means but one thing that he points out is that it's weird that is saying it says sbtc victory but she doesn't have it in front of her because if she had it in front of her, she would know that it said victory SBTC. So she's saying it for memory, which I do think is a little weird because I think that I would probably be holding the ransom note in my hand, like reading the entire thing a hundred times over. And I'd probably tell the 911 operator exactly what it said instead of just kind of coming up with something from memory. Yeah, there's nothing more different because I just don't personally think that you can know how you're going to act in that situation. You know, I can't even imagine. And I don't think I'd be able to do the right step by step, even though we talk about it all the time. I don't know that there's a right step by step, but I think that there's just things that people really just tend to do more often than not. The other thing that came out was Kimberly Archuleta actually told investigators that at the end of the 911 call, Patsy tried to hang up the phone and she could still be heard talking. And Kimberly was quoted telling the investigators, quote, what bothered me immensely after she hung up was it sounded like she said, okay, we've called the police. Now what? And that disturbed me. So I remained on the phone trying to hear what was being said, end quote. We don't have that last part of what she may or may not have said at the end after she tried to hang up the phone. But it does kind of make you wonder a little bit. Abby, I kind of already know your thought, but go ahead and tell them what your thought is on that. If she said, okay, we've called the police, now what? For me, that's just trying to figure out, okay, what do we do next? What's the right move next? We've called the police, now what do we do? Before their cops are there, which they were there in like seven minutes, but before they get there and you don't know what to do with yourself, I think it makes sense that she's just maybe talking out loud to her husband, like, what do we do now? That waiting, I bet that couple minutes waiting for them to get there was excruciating. Yeah, I, and I know that that's how you see it. I can see it that way. I can also see it the way that other people have taken it. And I think that was what kind of started with the concern about the parents possibly being a suspect was that she said 
okay, we've called the police, now what? And they took it as, we've called the police, now how do we cover this up? So we'll move on from this 911 call. Like I said, go on the statement analysis website. Look at it for yourself. There's a lot more that I really didn't go into. I only went into bits and pieces. But Mark really goes through and completely dissects the entire 911 call. The ransom note, interviews with the parents, which we're not even going to get into all of it. But I recommend that you go and look at that. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. After the 911 call and the police arrive at the Ramsey household, they don't see anything too weird. There's no sign of forced entry. Um, they set up a trace on the Ramsey's phone in case somebody calls in with another ransom demand or something like that. But for a couple hours, they don't know anything. They've searched the house. They can't seem to find her and they have not heard anything else. However, this changes a little while later when John comes upstairs from the basement and he's holding Jean Bonnet's body, which was wrapped in a blanket and he had found her in the wine cellar downstairs. This is one of the examples of where some problems ensue because he because he did pick her body up and carry her upstairs, which could contaminate any evidence that could potentially be there. Which I think could also just kind of be lucky for him if he was somehow involved in her death. I feel like it was kind of just lucky that he was the one that found her and was able to carry her upstairs because it could be a way for him to be like, oh, the reason my DNA is there is because I brought her upstairs. I know another issue they reported on a lot is that the Ramseys at this point, a lot of their friends had come over to the house and they were trying to help, but they were like cleaning, doing dishes and all these things, which it's another, it's possible some type of evidence could have been destroyed through that. It's always important to make sure you don't mess with the crime scene, which I know it can be hard to like process that and think through it you know you think you're going over there and trying to help them out in this time of need and you're really doing possibly more harm so jean benet had been sexually assaulted had been bludgeoned in the head with some type of unidentified object and strangled to death her cause of death was the strangulation and they were unknown, like I said, with what hit her in the head to cause the bleeding and fracture in her skull. It appears that the strangulation had happened about 45 minutes to two hours after she'd been hit and she had duct tape over her mouth and there were fibers from Patsy's sweater on the duct tape. However, they did not find the roll of duct tape that the piece came from or string that matched what had strangled her in the house anywhere. They did find the part of the paintbrush that was used to garrote her and part of it in a paint set box that was in a different part of the basement. 
Immediately, police and a lot of people around were convinced that the Ramseys had something to do with this. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit more about that ransom note. A few things about the ransom note. I'm actually going to I'm going to read it to you first. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We're a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We, next word crossed out, respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account, $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier delivery crossed out pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement, countermeasures, and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory S.B.T.C. Oh my God. There's just, there's so much to unpack there. So many weird things. So many questions. First, (laughs) why do they, they don't say John barely at all until that last paragraph. They say like four times. Yeah. Also, do not tell a stray dog. That was a weird one. You are not the only fat cat around. <laughs> that was more normal than don't talk to any stray dogs. Is it? Because I talk <laughs> to stray dogs all the time. <laughs> I'm a fat cat. <laughs> but it's just, it's so strange how it's worded. And, you know, that last part where it goes victory, exclamation point, and then the initials, I would assume. That victory is so strange. They're excited that they've won? And they haven't won. They don't have the money at this point. So you understand my question about this <laughs> ransom note. I know. And, you know, this is the one part of this case that, I mean, there's lots of parts, obviously, but this one really gets me because it is just so odd. And I don't even know how it fits into any of the theories out there. It doesn't at all. It is interesting in the ransom note that they specifically ask for $118,000. It is well reported that 
like we said earlier, they had a lot of money and John had just actually had a party for his employees because they'd reached $1 billion in sales, which was reported in the press. But that $118,000 specifically was the same amount he got on a bonus check that year. So the fact that the person, whoever wrote the note, knew that exact amount could point towards it being somebody he worked with or someone who knew the family or someone in the family, something like that. I would kind of hope that at this point, like, he would kind of know not to brag and be like, hey, I got a $118,000 bonus check because that's a lot of money. I mean, and I don't think that that's... So I kind of hope that not everyone knew that exact amount. So it is really weird that it was that amount because it really does kind of point to it being either the family or somebody that was very close to the family and knew them on a personal level or somebody that he was working with that just knew his bonus. Yeah, it doesn't make it... It's interesting because that pool could either be kind of small group of people or a large one because like we said earlier, they had a ton of people going through their house that they were... And not his... um like employee party and all this stuff. And, you know, not everybody would say that or brag about that maybe, but who knows how many people actually knew. And, you know, one person hears, oh my God, his bonus check was $118,000. That sounds like something you would maybe kind of gossip about, especially if they're well-known in the community. Exactly. That's definitely something to talk about. And they're already so rich that... I mean, is $118,000 a lot to him? Not really. He's a multimillionaire. Not if it's just a bonus check. I mean, yes, specifically I mean, like that. 10% of what you made that year, which holy <laughs> shit, but I can't even imagine. <laughs> just a bonus check of 118000 Just. Uh, or just 118000 period. <laughs> just sad millennial depression. <laughs> but yeah, it's. You know, it's something to think about how many people would know that. Abby and I are going to kind of go through the ransom note a little bit. And we'll post a picture of it on our social media so that you guys can look at it. And then if you want to look more into the analysis of it, you can go to that statement analysis website that I was telling you about and see what Mark has to say. But this is just going to be our analysis of it and probably not as in-depth as what he does. Yeah, and like she said, it's just going to kind of be our opinion, what we perceive from it. So feel free to message us or email us and let us know what you guys think as well. Immediately, it says, listen carefully with an exclamation point. And that part was weird to me because you're not really listening. <laughs> you're reading it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, though. I... I kind of have said things like that before. Like sometimes when I'm texting, I'll say, listen carefully. And did you write this? I might have. <laughs> From my infant bed, I was, yeah. I couldn't even walk by this point. <laughs> I was so tiny. But I feel like I've definitely, sometimes I say funky things like that. Like mm-hmm. I'll be texting somebody and I'll say, listen carefully. Or like, li- would you listen to me? And they're reading what I'm saying. They're not actually listening. So I think it's just kind of a metaphorical listen. Yeah. It's also odd that they say they represent a small foreign faction. I don't have the analysis of that. I Yep. Weird. That's my analysis. <laughs> it's odd. Well, like, I mean, maybe immediately when you read the first bit, it kind of sounds like it's they're trying to make it sound almost terroristy or something like that. I kind of... I go back and forth. I kind of feel like two people wrote this letter. 
one person wrote the first two paragraphs <laughs> yeah. and a completely different person wrote the last paragraph. It does. It does sound really weird. It all flips a little bit. You're talking about earlier in the 911 called addiction changing. This one is like that. Diction changes. Spelling is awful oh in gosh, certain yeah. places. And then other hard words are spelled correctly. Almost like maybe they took the time to kind of look up the harder words on how to spell them. Or Yeah, and in any article or documentary involving this case, they talk about how some of the words are really like low grammar. And then they use the word like attache, which is not, you know, a super common word to use. Absolutely. So one of the things that is kind of weird about this letter, too, is it was written on a notepad that was in the Ramsey's home. It, yeah. And wasn't there evidence of like a practice? There was evidence of a practice. So there were indents on the ransom note that was left from a previous one that had been practiced. So this was the second time that this note was written. So I do think it's weird that they're writing it a second time after they've kind of already done a rough draft and they're still crossing things out and changing them. Just this next sentence, we, and then they have the next word crossed out and you can't really see what it says. Respect your business. Yeah, and they clearly took a lot of time writing this out, which is odd considering the fact that they were possibly in the house unless the notepad wasn't in the house when they wrote it. I did see something where they're talking about how they had so many people in and out of the house. It's possible they took it with them and brought it back, which, I mean, that would point to a lot of premeditation and planning, which who knows. Um, however, the fact that the stuff used to uh, murder Jean Benet and stuff were in the house doesn't point to the premeditation quite as much to me. So the note really... I have a hard time fitting it in with any scenario. Yeah, the, the note is just kind of, it's really weird because we already know John Bonet's dead. So they didn't kidnap her. So why are they leaving a ransom? What was the likelihood that the family wasn't going to find her body in the home? Yeah, and it's almost like you wonder if they really were going to, like, if they were planning to kill her, which happened, and then they were going to try to ask for money on top of that. It would have made more sense for them to take her body. Absolutely. Instead of risk what actually happened, which is John finding her body, assuming an outside person came in and did this. And and you said, what'd you say earlier? You think it was a murder made to look like a kidnapping? Yes. As opposed to a kidnapping that turned into a murder. I don't think it was a kidnapping that went wrong. I think that they maybe accidentally murdered her i guess if you want to go with the family theory if you want to go with a different theory i think that they murdered her and then we're kind of hoping that they could just get money on top of it yeah get money and escape or something like that or like you said if the family was involved just trying to cover it up either way i really think this note is what threw a big old curveball into the investigation is because it's so strange the whole thing is weird they talk about how if you want her to see 1997. Yeah, how, what a weird way to say it. Like, what, a, why wouldn't you just say if you want her to see tomorrow? Yeah. Why the next year? There were just a lot of really weird things in it. And then you get to that middle paragraph and they are so specific about how the dollar bills need to come. Yeah, they go kind of from a little bit, like, they go from specific to very vague and then back to specific, and it's, you know, the you talking about the different dollar bills and, like, all the percentages. Also, I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow. Yeah. That's such a wide range. Like, how many 
people do you know that how many ransom calls are done between a two hour time period? That's like a two hour time period is you waiting for the cable guy to come, not for somebody to call you about your their your daughter that they just kidnapped. Yeah. And, you know, it's also weird that they talk about if they t- contact the police that the daughter is going to get beheaded when we know that's not what even happened to her. I just and I go back to it. I just cannot get over that last thing where they say victory with an exclamation point. That is like that's the big one to me. Like what (laughs) in the world? So that's the one thing that I'm actually going to talk about from the statement analysis website because I don't have an answer for that even slightly. Um, But he talks about the SBTC, which is part of that signature kind of. So there's a lot of speculation and kind of research into what SBTC could have meant. Did it mean, was it some sort of initials? If so, why is there no period after the C? Is it some sort of, is it one person's initials that just has like two middle names, two last names? Is it two people's initials? Is it the first initial of everybody's name? And there's four people involved. Is it the name of some faction that is actually some foreign faction that actually did kidnap her. But the other thing that they kind of have looked at is maybe it means saved by the cross. And it kind of turns into a religious thing at this point where victory can mean victory over death. It's kind of a a little bit of a far stretch, but it's I've seen the saved by the cross as the possible signature in multiple places. And he talks about how it's like victory over the death because we're saved by the cross. I think I need more of an explanation. I'm confused as to what the saved by the cross, what does that mean in conjecture with this? Like, what are they saying by that? So they talk about how the family is religious. And so they're saved by the cross for, I, I think he when he talks about it, his kind of take on it is more blaming the family for the death but saved by the cross meaning like i'm forgiven for accidentally murdering my daughter i'm forgiven for my sins so we're having victory over the death because we're saved by the cross for our sins does that make any sense to you because you're giving me a look i mean for me no (laughs) but maybe that's just because it's still so weird with the no even if that's what it is correct but does the note make sense anywhere else no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, None it, of it makes sense. That's why I'm like, my brows are furrowed and I don't get that either. But like you said, I don't get any of it. So there's definitely a lot of weird things with it. And so they kind of think that it is an acronym only because there is no period after the C. So I can see it, but it doesn't make any more sense. This is the only explanation that I've actually found Not that it makes tons of sense, but it's something more than nothing, which is why I decided to go into it. But definitely check out the statement analysis site. Do some research on it. Look at the note yourself. Let us know your thoughts and like what you guys have kind of concluded from the letter and all the weird phrases about like talking to a stray dog and things like that. We're going to move on to kind of suspects slash... A little bit with what happened initially after all this was reported. So, as we said earlier, immediately, police, Boulder police, and a lot of media and people, the general public, I guess, really thought either the parents had something to do with it or Burke, who was nine at the time, maybe accidentally 
or in a fit of rage, hit his sister, which killed her. And then they tried to cover it up. Which I think a lot of that really stems from the fact that mom, dad, and Burke were the only ones in the home at the time of the murder. And there were no signs of forced entry. And so I think that that's where a lot of it really came from at the beginning. And then part of the, like, the paintbrush thing was from the home. Mm -hmm. The ransom note was from the home. There were just different things that could have pointed to the family, but also could have pointed to somebody else. Well, yeah. And like I said, the media had a field day with it. And they said there's no way someone got in because there weren't tracks in the snow, which from crime scene photos, the pathways and stuff around the house were clear. So there wouldn't necessarily be footprints. People didn't understand how they got in the house. But there was a like grate kind of on the ground on the side of the house that you could open up and step into this little area and get into the basement. And it was reported there's no way people could have gotten into it because there was a cobweb that was undisturbed or something. I don't know about that. Some people said it was too small for people to get through, but there was an investigator on the case named Lou Smith who, I mean, there's a video where like he just... He's a full-grown man and kind of just gets in there easily. However, people, like I said with the cobweb thing, some people don't believe someone could have got in that way. I do know, for me personally, I think if someone really wanted to enter the house, they could have because they let so many people in. It wouldn't be too far-fetched think someone went in and either unlocked a window or found a way to come in uninvited. However, a lot of people don't think that happened and they really do believe that the family was involved. So we'll talk a little bit about why some people do other reasons people think the family was involved. I will say that they got touch DNA off of JonBenet's leggings and her underwear, which do clear the Ramses and I think most of the suspects that are being circulated, but there's some issues with touch DNA and how easily it can be spread. But they definitely point to some of the weirdness of the Ramses. So they think that they kind of go back and forth in their interviews with when they recall the events and talk about what happens. Something specifically I see a lot of is they talk about how Patsy was wearing the same clothes she was wearing the night before, which I don't even really know how to take that one. Yeah, she said that she woke up and put the same clothing back on. Which I don't even know if it's relevant or not relevant. I can't decide. Because if she had taken those clothes off the night before and just kind of laid them down, I don't think it's that weird to wake up and just put those back on. I agree. Especially just the sweater. They didn't say anything about the pants, but the sweater she was wearing was the same. I wake up and sometimes I just toss the sweatshirt on that's right by my bed if I'm just going to be walking around my house for a while she was doing laundry so maybe she was just wearing that to do the laundry or maybe i also don't don't understand if she's wearing the same stuff what does that prove nothing i don't think i don't either but that she didn't go to bed that night because they were busy (laughs) i don't know i guess maybe people think it points that she something happened and she never went to bed And that's when they were covering up and stuff. But I mean, wouldn't you want to change clothing if you did do something like that to try to cover up any evidence? You would think, but I I don't really know. know. Who knows? Well, any hoodles. um, The Boulder police were entirely certain it was the Ramses. And there's a lot of issues going back with them and the DA because the DA 
was not quite as convinced. There is something I kind of wanted to talk about that I learned through this because they talk about how there was evidence of vaginal inflammation in John Bonet that could point to like maybe previous sexual assault. They're talking in one of these documentaries I was watching, they talked with an expert or a medical examiner who said that that's actually very common in kids and it can happen just from like wiping incorrectly or scratching or something like that so it doesn't necessarily point to previous sexual abuse i know a lot of people talk about too that jean benet had a bedwetting problem possibly which can also point to that sign as well so the two together kind of make you wonder for a minute yeah and Media really took a hold on that and the Boulder police, as I said, and a lot of people do truly believe that she had either got accidentally hit in the head and died, I guess, by the parents and it was a cover up or Burke, which I know there's a documentary out and they basically point the finger at Burke and I know they're getting sued and that's what led to Burke going on Dr. Phil and defending himself, which... A lot of people think he was kind of creepy and weird on it. Yeah, I actually, like, watched clips from that, and I agree that he was really creepy and weird. And that could just be his personality, but I just, I didn't see sorrow or any sort of emotion in his face, really. He seemed really cold. I wonder if, though, I mean, it's been 23 years and he was only nine. I wonder if he just blocked that out emotionally. Um which is possible. I I kind of, I know you and I have different viewpoints. I do kind of lean towards it being him the that th- was involved. The thing that I have a hard time buying into with the family stuff is Jean Bay didn't pass away from getting hit in the head. She died from the strangulation. And there's evidence that while she was being choked or strangled that she had been clawing to try to like save herself from the rope. There's claw marks on her neck and the whole, it's all so sad. And I, I mean, this one of those cases that has been really hard for me to research and I'm sure the same for Erica because it is so sad. It's hard for me to see that scenario because that would mean they would have had, let's say Burke hit her in the head because he was mad or something They would have had to still strangle her to death later on, which doesn't seem like a cover up unless they really just didn't like their kid. I mean, if one of your kids accidentally hurts your other one, you think you would call 911 or take them to the hospital, not like wait another 45 minutes to two hours and then be like, oh, now we have to strangle her and cover it up. I think as sad as this is going to be there, I I have a theory as to what could have happened if there were signs of her being sexually assaulted by somebody in the family whether that be mom dad brother then maybe some incident happened where she was trying to get away from it this last time and she fell and hit her head and then to keep it covered up they ended up strangling her so that she couldn't talk about it which is why I kind of feel like the brother is kind of maybe the one that did it. Because if the brother did it, I could see the parents helping cover it up 100% to kind of help their kid. I feel like that would be a really hard situation in any way and a hard thing for a parent to do. And 
I honestly don't know if I was a parent, like what decision I would make in that situation because you si- you have to side with one kid or the other right there. But it, there, in my head, there's just a way to kind of explain if it was somebody in the family, why there was that delay between the initial head hitting and then the strangulation. One other thing I want to touch on that they found in the autopsy is Jamade had these unexplained marks on her back and kind of on like her face neck area that were equal distance apart and it points to a taser or a stun gun being used and they tested this and it matched the same markings on her with that evidence sometimes it could lead more into the theory that someone came in was trying to subdue her and maybe keep her quiet i think a girl that young if she got tased she might kind of pass out right Probably from pain, yeah. Mm -hmm. But like I said earlier, they did have that touch DNA. And I mean, there was nothing reported in family history that indicated violence. However, we know that that's not always reported. That stuff isn't. But because that DNA and some other evidence, the parents and Burke are officially ruled out as suspects. In 2000, Mary Lacey became DA and she actually took over the case And she declared the parents and Burke innocent in 2008 due to that DNA and other evidence. And from that point, we have other suspects that have kind of came about through other investigators um, and also the Ramsey's private investigator that they had working the case. suspect that we're going to talk about is John Mark Carr. And he was arrested in Bangkok, Thailand after there was some evidence that was found where police decided that they wanted to question him. He had been facing child pornography charges in the United States. And so police kind of were keeping an eye on him. And then they never released what evidence they found that made them want to question him. But they decided that he was definitely somebody to at least check out. John Carr reached out to a professor, Michael Tracy, through email, and the reason he reached out to him was because he was making a documentary about John Bonet and her killing and her murder, and John told Michael about his sexual fascination with John Bonet, and I kind of think that that really is what maybe made police want to look at him. Most likely. John then confessed to the murder in a series of diary entries and they were just really creepy entries. Yeah, I was reading through some of them the other day when I was researching this and I chose not to read those to you guys. I think Erica will probably back me on that. If you guys want to look them up, you can find them, but just be warned, it's stomach turning. John had also apparently told an American investigator that he had drugged John Bonet and then sexually assaulted her before he accidentally killed her. And that statement came forward from a Thai police official named General Suat, and his last name starts with a T. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. John ended up telling police that it was second-degree murder because he didn't mean to kill her. He didn't come in with that plan. It's just kind of what happened. I do kind of question it, though, because... Whoever hit her in the head then waited at least an hour before strangling her. And so there was definitely some meditation in there. There's some definitely some thought process. So they actually 
were able to rule him out as a suspect because they found out that it was just a false confession. He just really wanted to take the credit for the crime, but he wasn't even in Boulder at the time of the murder. Yeah, I do believe the DNA actually excluded him as well. Yeah, it sounds like he was just really a creep that just kind of was interested in child porn and just he wanted some attention. Our next suspect was named by the Ramsey's private investigator, Ollie Gray. This guy's name is Michael Helgoth. He was an electrician who worked nearby the Ramsey household, and he had had some type of property dispute or issues with the Ramseys. So people thought maybe he wanted revenge, or if you're looking at the money aspect of it, maybe he knew how much money that the Ramseys were making was trying to get that ransom and something else weird and strange about him is in 1997 the Boulder DA held a press conference where they said that they were zeroing in on a new suspect and two days later Michael actually committed suicide which sounds a little sketchy but we do know that they checked the touch DNA that was found at the crime scene and it does not match his DNA. The last suspect that we're going to talk about, but not the last suspect that they look into. Like we said, make sure you do your research on this as well. So we're going to talk about Gary Oliva, who is a pedophile, and he's actually currently in jail. Um, and he will be up for parole in 2020, so shortly after this episode's released. The reason that he's kind of looked at as a suspect is one of Gary's friends, Michael Vale actually kind of was suspicious of Gary since December of 1996. He's actually quoted saying, quote, my suspicions began when Gary called me late at night on December 26th, 1996. He was sobbing and said, I heard a little girl. I tried to get more information out of him. The only thing he told me was that he was in the Boulder, Colorado area. On December 27th, I read on the front page of my local newspaper, girl, six, slain in boulder colorado i immediately called the boulder police department and told them what i knew about gary and what he had told me just days earlier they didn't get back to me three months later i called the police again to find out what was going on in its investigation of gary but instead i was sent to a police answering machine set up for tips on the john benet case i left a message on the recorded line and again i never heard back from investigators end quote you know this is interesting too because There is a lot of controversy where the DA was talking about how the Boulder police was basically trying to ignore all evidence that could be someone else, another suspect. So I think a lot of people probably read this, um, like, interview, I guess, with Michael Vale and point towards that as well. Yeah, because they were trying to make the family, they were trying to make the evidence fit the family. Mm Mm-hmm. And they had decided at the beginning that the family was the suspect that they were looking for and they really didn't want to investigate anything else. The main reason that other than this phone call that Michael Vale thought Gary could be involved was that Gary had apparently attempted to choke his mother with a telephone cord at one point. And the knots on the garrote were similar to the knots that were used when he tried to choke his mother. And the knots that were used were supposedly a weird knot. They weren't just some some typical knot. Yeah, and you know, you hear about this a lot where stuff like how like the type of rope or whatever utensil is used in the knots kind of have their own signature sometimes. Yeah, they do. So I do think that that's definitely something that's really weird. 
The other thing is Gary had actually written a letter, and this is as recent as 2019, so earlier in the year that we're recording this. He said in the letter to Michael that, I never loved anyone like I did John Bonet, and yet I let her slip and her head bashed in half and I watched her die. It was an accident. Please believe me. She was not like the other kids. And Michael decided to really kind of take one for the team and just keep writing to Gary and talking to him about things. And in another letter, Gary said, John Bonet completely changed me and removed all evil from me. Just one look at her beautiful face, her glowing, beautiful skin, and her divine God body. I realized I was wrong to kill other kids. Yet by accident, she died and it was my fault. It's so gross and so creepy. I hate this part. Yeah, he's just a really, really creepy guy, which we'll post a photo of him. I also think he looks really creepy. So he actually kind of has been a suspect since 2000. The police, and it wasn't necessarily because of the phone calls that Michael Vale was making to the police with the tips, but he was arrested on unrelated charges in 2000, and police found a photo of John Bonet that he had cut out of a magazine with a poem that he had written that was called Ode to John Bonet, and he had a stun gun that he owned. A lot of investigators really theorized that this stun gun could have been the one that was used on the night of the murder of John Bonet. I even read that at one point the Ramsey's private investigator Ollie Gray referred to all of his ties to John Bonet as a quote bombshell arrest, end quote. So I think he really was feeling fishy about this guy as well, which when you hear all that stuff he wrote or said or what have you, it is just not how you talk about someone else's kid. Exactly. And I, I don't think that he's actually been ruled out as a suspect. Um, I think that he's kind of somebody that they still have on the radar. But I don't I don't know that he's the one that did it. I think he's just somebody that had a really creepy obsession with John Bonet. And he said something about he shouldn't have killed her like he killed other kids or something. He's been arrested for being a pedophile. I don't think that he killed other kids, especially since he's going to be getting out of prison soon. At least they haven't found any evidence to lead to that. It was nothing that I came across in my research about anything with him killing other kids. So his letter doesn't seem 100%. But I know that Michael Vale has been writing letters back and forth to Gary throughout the years trying to see if he could confess to the murder, which it sounds like he did. But I don't think that the police are 100% sold on it actually being him or if he's just another guy like John Carr that's just trying to claim some credit for it. On Thursday, January 10th, 2019, the Boulder Police Department released a statement that said, quote, The Boulder Police Department is aware of Gary Oliva and has investigated his potential involvement in this case, including several previous confessions. The department routinely receives information on this investigation. Information provided to the police department reviewed along with many tips and theories we receive. There are no new updates in this investigation and the department will not comment further. End quote. Sean Bonet Ramsey is buried in Marietta, Georgia, beside her mother, Patsy, who had died from ovarian cancer in 2006, and by her half-sister, Elizabeth or Beth Ramsey, who had died in a car crash in 1992. 
Anyone with information about John Benet Ramsey's murder is asked to contact the Boulder Police Department tip line at 303-441-1974, or you can email Boulder's Most Wanted at bouldercolorado.gov. If you would like to remain anonymous, you may contact the Northern Colorado Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica dash Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much.